1: All right, once again, we are back at it. And it is a target-rich environment today. There is a lot to talk about. Thanks for joining us, fellow wrong thinker. Our program brought to you by Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, John or Jeff Staples Real Estate, and the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Wonderful sponsors, each and every one of them. By the way, I want to give a shout out too to the to the various uh, radio stations and networks that are carrying this program, uh, Loving Liberty, uh, the Fed by Ravens Media Network, also uh, Talkstream Live. Uh, let's see, uh, Liberty News Radio, Missouri Liberty Radio, and uh, and I'm I'm probably leaving a couple of people out, uh, KDXU. In uh, Saint George, Utah. Thank you so much for uh, picking up the show. Uh, they carry best of programs on the weekend, but uh, yeah, little by little, this little show is growing and uh, and and spreading the message of of wrongthink everywhere we go. It's kind of a cool feeling, and I'm I'm just I'm very humbled and very grateful to be a part of this. And boy, is there a need for it. So let's where to begin. So much going on here. I guess I want to I want to talk a little bit about face masks. And, uh, and an experience that I have seen over the last few days that has, has really left me um, a little bit discouraged, but mostly just shaking my head. Here's the gist of it. Election year notwithstanding, I believe that the issue that's causing the most unnecessary conflict among us today is the issue of mandatory face masks. So I just I want to make this clear. If you choose to wear a face mask because it makes you feel safe, or make you feel like, hey, I'm doing my part to protect other people just in case I might be sick, I have absolutely no problem with that. The problem I have is when it becomes a mandatory thing. Look, if you, if you want to persuade people this is a better way, I say by all means do it. And you know what? If your argument is persuasive enough or if your uh, example is persuasive enough, more power to you. That's how you really win hearts and minds. But when it's made mandatory, when the threat of force or the threat of, well, we'll withhold service from you or we'll otherwise find some way to ostracize or punish you, when that becomes a part of the equation, yeah, that's, that's coercion. And I'm not down with that. But if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that uh, face masks may be the issue causing the most unnecessary conflict among us today, care to try an experiment? Go out in public without one. That's all you have to do. Go walk into a store without one. Uh, assuming you live in an area that's, you know, uh, not locked up tighter than a turtle's belly button. But, or or if, you, if you prefer, walk up to someone who isn't wearing a mask and remind them. Gently, diplomatically remind them. Hey, you should be wearing one. No matter how diplomatic you are, the chances are very, very high. In either case, you're going to see pushback. And I'm going to share this from, from personal experience, having seen this play out over the weekend. Now, I've, I've told you before, I have a side gig. And it's, it's a part-time job. It's now a very, very part-time job. But, uh, but I, I work at a retail establishment where masks are required for the employees. 100% of the time, if you're on, if you're on shift, because you're dealing with the public, you have to wear a mask. Now, that's part of a voluntary employment contract. And so I put the mask on while I'm, you know, on the clock. But in the last uh, week or so, the county where I live, Utah County, in the state of Utah, has uh, issued a mandatory mask uh, dictate. I don't It's not a law. It's in no way, you know, legislatively binding on the people. But the health department, along with a couple of county commissioners, sneakily passed something in the late hours of the night. And now it's, it's a mandatory thing. And this is in response to uh, a spike in positive COVID tests. Not deaths, not hospitalizations, just a number of, of uh, greater numbers of tests. And I don't even know if they all, uh, all those t- positive tests occurred within the last week or if they were just reported within the last week. It's all pretty murky, but the bottom line is a um, couple of the county commissioners, along with health department officials, are flexing for all they are worth and telling people you have to wear masks. And sadly, this side gig um, where, where I work, um, the company has gone along with it and now has posted signs all over you know, the the front of the establishment, to come in here, you must be wearing a mask. Now, I am I, I have to be kind of deliberately vague here because I'm not trying to start any kind of, you know, I, I don't want to start any controversy. But uh, let me just say, this is the kind of retail establishment where people usually aren't there long-term. They're in and out in a matter of minutes. But I would say roughly, probably about 50-50, people come in wearing masks. Others don't. Again, they're they're... They're not there long term, so it's not like, you know, it's not like a trip to Costco, right? Where you're going to spend some time shopping, browsing, you know, doing your doing your stuff. Nonetheless, we were told that uh, you have to remind people if someone shows up without a mask. We've got the signs posted everywhere, but uh, we're supposed to tell them you should be wearing a mask, or the next time you come back, you should have a mask on, and that's all. We're not supposed to rigorously enforce it or you know kick them out of the store, refuse to give them any any business you know if if they uh, aren't wearing a mask. As you might guess, I have a real problem with this. Number one because I'm not their mother, <laughs> okay'm I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not the parent, and it's not my job to sit there and hold their hand and tell them, "No you should be doing this." but I've watched with with great interest and actually a little bit of horror as uh, some of my my coworkers have uh, reminded people the health department's asked us that uh, you know you wear a mask and people flip out I'm talking long time regulars people who've been there you know many times and you know that uh, you you would think hey we're on friendly terms with this person I'm talking middle fingers in the air f-bombs flying people getting angry now, you may say, well, that's just the mind of an anti-masker. You know, that's what you people are like. I don't think it is. I really think it's because people are, are, are reaching the, the breaking point. And this is just one more thing. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very sad. It's very sad to see. I, I'll just tell you right now, for the record, I have never hassled anybody about their mask. I never will. I've never hassled anybody who's not wearing a mask. And I never will. And if it really comes down to it, if it's like, well, you either, you know, you either tell them to put the mask on or else, I'll take or else. And that's just me. I'm not their parent. But I see the frustration. And, and again, it's unnecessary conflict. And here's the issue that I have. That unnecessary conflict keeps us fighting amongst ourselves, the maskers versus the anti-maskers, and so on. When we should be focusing our energy on the opportunistic officials and power seekers who are pushing this nonsense on us. That's what I—that's what I think we're missing. Now I have to allow I could be wrong. It may be that I'm totally looking at this from the wrong perspective. But it's been kind of tough to watch, you know, the, some of some of my coworkers, people people who I really like. I care about these people. And they're not being rude in the least and they're not being vehement in any way when they say to the customer, hey, you really should be wearing a mask or could you please have a mask on the next time you come back. They're being as diplomatic and polite as they possibly can and it unleashes rage in certain people, which leads me to believe I don't think those people are necessarily walking around, you know, in a state of rage all the time, just looking for somebody to go off on. I suspect most of of what I'm seeing is pent-up frustration that is finally just, you know, coming to the surface, and it's probably because they've been experiencing pushback other places. I've experienced pushback as I've gone out without a mask in in public. I know other people have, too. Now, I know in the grand scheme of things, is this really going to matter that much? When, When we're on our deathbeds, not from COVID, but just, you know, from old age, presumably, right? As we're laying there on our deathbeds and we're looking back on our lives and recounting, okay, well, uh, you know, what, how were things and what did I do? What do I regret? What did I spend enough time on? What do I wish I'd spent more time on? I can say this with almost 100% certainty. I bet nobody lays there on their deathbed going, if only I had pressured more people into wearing a mask or vice versa if only I'd pressured more people into to not wearing a mask I think this is just one of those artificial crazy things that has been foisted on us that unfortunately is taking a lot of our time and apparently attention because I'm talking about it right let's not lose focus of who the real enemy is it's not COVID-19 it's power corrupted power being consolidated We'll be back in a moment.
0: This This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The
1: Brian Hyde Show. All right. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad that you could join me today. I'm so glad you could indulge in some wrong think. If you haven't done it already, I hope you'll uh, trip on over to my website, thebrianheidshow.com. And if you're accessing the show notes, which is where you will find links to all of the various stories and essays that I'm sharing with you today, look down at the bottom of the page and you'll find not only links to my sponsors, you will also see a link where you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you choose, you can become a wrong thinker yourself. I want to stay in touch with the wrong thinkers. In fact, what we really need and what I've got to do next, this is like on my list of things to do this week, is we're going to create a Facebook group specifically for our fellow wrong thinkers, a place where we can get together and discuss stuff and, and you know, hang out virtually and just, you know, have some camaraderie. But consider subscribing to the podcast. Consider becoming a wrong thinker. Consider, if you will, becoming a patron we've got a number of wonderful listeners who have uh, have through uh, patreon and through uh, through the podcast site itself chosen to become supporters of this program some of them 5 bucks a month some of them 10 bucks a month i will tell you this it is greatly appreciated because i am uh, well and truly independent at this time and so every single dime counts and everything every every donation that i receive is uh, is greatly appreciated and goes for the purpose of keeping this platform of truth moving ahead, growing, and and speaking truths that uh, are difficult to find in other places. Well, let's uh, let's speak a little truth right now. Here's something encouraging. Here in my home state of Utah, um, there was a there has been a spike, and and yes, the fear porn that is pouring from most of the Heritage media is is nearly palpable. Why there's been more than a thousand cases of COVID that have been you know reported in the last two days or something. It's they always report these cases without any context as to what does that mean. And so it's, it's, you know, are the hospitalizations way higher? I have seen a couple of numbers, but it's been like very, very small numbers, like, uh, you know, maybe a dozen hospitalizations. I see deaths reported, and it's always single digits. But the cases, the cases, that's where the focus is. And I presume the, the goal here is to keep us in, in fear that, oh, my gosh, it's spreading. We really should cancel Halloween. But the worst part is, as soon as those positive test numbers went up, the governor declares another state of emergency. And, of course, he claims, well, I have to do this, and we have to have a state of emergency in order to keep the, the funds flowing. Well, there is enough of a groundswell of support from the public, I should say a pushback from the public, that I'm hoping to see this nipped in the bud. And so when I saw that to Representative Mark Roberts who is a legislator here in the state of Utah? Is uh, I don't know I, I don't know the right word. He's promoting or at least he's he's advancing a joint resolution that would end the declaration of emergency. He posted a rough draft. I actually have a link to this in the show notes. Um, whether you live in Utah or not, this might be something worthwhile or at least something you could suggest to your legislators if you find yourself facing kind of a similar situation. And I'm not going to read the whole resolution, but I just want to hit a couple of the high points. Because this talks about how back on March 6th, the governor in Utah declared a statewide state of emergency arising from the arrival in Utah, of the contagious disease known as COVID-19. And at that time, the overwhelming concern was we have got to slow the spread of the disease so we don't overwhelm the medical system. We don't want to overwhelm the hospitals, the respirators, the medical personnel. June 18th of 2020, there was a special session of the legislature. The legislature voted to extend that state of emergency until August 20th. And as soon as that state of emergency expired on August 20th, the governor immediately declared another state of emergency. 30 days, well, not quite 30 days later, he declared, he issued another executive order declaring another state of emergency for the same uh, disaster. Now, here's where it gets interesting, because in the Utah Code, it says, quote, a state of emergency may not continue for longer than 30 days unless extended by joint resolution of the legislature, which may also terminate a state of emergency by joint resolution at any time. Thereupon, the governor shall issue an executive order ending the state of emergency on receipt of the legislator's resolution. So you can see the remedy is built in. But here's the kicker. Nowhere in Utah code is the governor granted authority to renew an emergency or issue a new declaration of the same emergency. So Representative Roberts and and those who have have written this resolution talks about how it's time that, uh, that, that the governor be reined in his wings be clipped. Now, this is, this is for his own good as well as the good of the state of, of Utah. But it comes down to separation of powers. And this uh, resolution refers to the different powers of the government divided into three distinct departments, legislative, executive, and judicial. And it says in the Utah Constitution, no person charged with the exercise of powers properly belonging to one of those departments shall exercise any functions appertaining to either of the others, except in cases herein expressly permitted or directed. Now, something else I love here is uh, Representative Roberts and those who wrote this resolution go back to the very foundation of American government. And they're speaking the language of liberty when they talk about the importance of what were called auxiliary precautions. That's a phrase James Madison used. These are the separations of powers that were built into our Constitution, and they cite James Madison from Federalist 51, quote, It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices, meaning checks and balances, should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, Neither, in, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government, but experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary precautions. End quote. Again, that's James Madison, father of the Constitution. So to that end, the legislature in Utah has demonstrated through multiple special sessions its capability of assembling to perform urgent policy-making duties during this pandemic. This means the governor doesn't need to be exercising emergency powers. And it also points out that during the pandemic, the governor's been using emergency powers normally reserved for the legislature to execute non-urgent policy decisions. Now, of course, the excuse he's given is, well, we have to do this in order to keep those federal funds coming. But this resolution notes the Stafford Act, which authorizes the delivery of federal, technical, financial, logistical, and other assistance to states and localities, does not require a state to be under a declared state of emergency in order to receive federal funds or assistance. And so citing the Utah Constitution, citing Utah Code, it says, now therefore be it resolved by members of the Utah House of Representatives and the Utah Senate concurring herein, the state of emergency related to COVID-19 issued by the governor September 19, 2020, is declared to be terminated as of the date of passage of this joint resolution. And be it further resolved, the legislature informs the governor that he may not lawfully issue subsequent emergency declarations or orders related to COVID-19. And it directs that a copy of this joint resolution be transmitted immediately upon passage to the governor of the state of Utah. Is it anarchy? (laughs) I'll leave that for you to decide. But I think it's high time for something like this to happen. I'm going to be keeping a very close eye on this. And again, my apologies to those of you who don't live within, you know, the state of Utah who may not feel like you're affected by it. But if uh, your uh, authorities are getting a little froggy, this might be a good model of legislation to rein them back in. We'll be right back.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples and his lovely wife, Heather. And I know that uh, real estate is super hot right now in Utah. I assume it's this way in other places. I've seen that uh, in, in some cases, actually buying a home hasn't been this easy since about 2006. I know there's some people going, oh, yeah, that, that makes me a little bit nervous. But bottom line is there is great opportunity for those of you who are in the market for a home. And if you are home shopping and you are looking to be pre-qualified, maybe you found your dream home and you uh, you want to get that home loan, talk to my friends at the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. 23 states strong. They are operational in 23 different states. And they have the experience. They have the know-how. They have the clout to help make things happen for you. If you're looking to refinance your home, they can do the same thing. But best of all, John brings this attention to detail and just excellence in customer service that I would want you to consider him being being your uh, your mortgage guy. In other words, he really will take care of you. I wouldn't recommend him to you if I didn't trust him, and I've known John for many, many years, and he is one of the best people I know. So... Go to staplesmortgage.com. Again, staplesmortgage.com. That's the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and I appreciate them being sponsors. So, there's something going on since I was mentioning in the last couple of uh, segments about uh, some of the things happening in the state of Utah uh, regarding uh, pushback against some of the lockdown policies. I wanted you to know that uh, there is a rally coming up this coming Friday, October 2nd, 6 p.m. at the Provo Historic Courthouse. This is on South University Avenue, and it's a Utah County Freedom Rally. Since Utah County has chosen to up the ante and really crack down, um, including that uh, mask mandate, Utah Business Revival, as well as uh, a few others, have come together, and they're asking you to to come and show your support. So you can come expecting something. It's not just going to be fiery speeches and pitchforks and torches. You understand that, right? We're talking inspiring, uplifting, motivational messages, but most of all, a show of solidarity for family, for friends. They'll have music, they'll have speakers, prayer, bring candles. Become prepared to stand for your freedom. Interesting thing, too, I was noticing that in the comments, there were a couple of things that have, have been brought up here. This one is very disturbing to me um, Utah County. And and in particular in particular, the two of the universities, Utah Valley University and Brigham Young University, have really been stringent on how they are handling, you know, the, the COVID scare. And I can't confirm this, but one of the commenters in, in the comments on, on Eric Mutzos's post about this Utah County Freedom Rally on Facebook talked about how for the last three weeks, Utah County has been responsible for the quarantine imprisonment of multiple dorm rooms of boys at Brigham Young University where absolutely no food was provided to them. Yes, Utah County and BYU have locked them up and not fed the teenage students who are dependent on this. Well, how could that happen? How how could that possibly be the case? Well, someone else shared this... uh, This is from Mary Geslison Gifford. And she says, My nephew from Texas has been quarantined for three weeks in his dorm at BYU because his roommate tested positive for COVID but never had symptoms. And BYU officials didn't enter it into their system for the mandatory two-week quarantine until the students had already been in quarantine for a week. Now, here's the difficult part. Okay, so, so, okay, someone was exposed. Yeah, I guess it would make sense. You're going to make sure everybody is being safe. But part of keeping him safe means that BYU froze his meal card so he wouldn't be able to go and get food on campus. So here's this student stuck in the dorms with no car, with no way to grocery shop, and no way to eat on campus. Money he already paid for that meal card. So apparently, his aunt delivered some groceries to him after hearing about his situation and saw and took a photo of a message in a window in the Heritage Halls building. And someone took tape and wrote on the window, Got COVID? Question mark. Got food? Question mark. He's clearly not the only BYU student with no way to get food. And she asks the question, How is this okay? It's not. It's not. I'm sure the best of intentions are behind, you know, this, uh, well, we've got to keep everything locked down. We've got to make sure that uh, we're doing our part. And by the way, this isn't just happening here. So I'm, I'm, let me broaden the perspective here. Um, this is happening in other cities across the nation. It's also happening in other countries around the world. If you want to see the worst of the worst, take a look down under. Look at Australia. Look at New Zealand. Or for that matter, you can actually just look over at, at Great Britain. And you can see the the crackdown is getting more intense. And I'm not sure exactly where this came from. Brendan O'Neill, who's the editor of Spiked Online, talks about how on March 23rd, Boris Johnson, their prime minister, locked down their country. It would last for three weeks, he said, and had one simple aim, prevent the National Health Service from being overwhelmed by COVID cases. But then he says, six months on, where are we? A quarter of the population is still under lockdown, the rest of us living under the most stringent social rules in living memory. And by the way, a lot of stuff has come out over the weekend, a lot of video from London of police violently cracking down on people protesting against the lockdowns. Now, these people are not doing the BLM, let's burn it all down kind of protests. They're peacefully protesting. Those cops were not being peaceful. They were violently shutting down anyone who disagrees with that new authoritarianism. And you've seen this in Scotland. You've seen it in other areas. And by the way, they too have students locked in their halls of residence, prevented by actual police officers from even going outside. The cops are patrolling the halls of their dorms. They can't go visit a pub. They can't return home. This is really scary stuff. And Brendan O'Neill asks, how has this happened? How did we go... From a three-week effort to protect the NHS from a sudden spike in coronavirus cases, to a forever lockdown, to the reorganization, rather, of political, social, and economic life around a novel virus, to a situation where fresher students are putting signs saying, help, on the windows of their dorm rooms, fearful that they'll be arrested if they leave. Okay, this isn't fantasy. This isn't just, well, you guys are exaggerating. That's legit. How did you get to that point? And Brendan O'Neill says, because the only way we get out of this crisis, this crisis of freedom, of autonomy, and of reason itself, is if we know how we got into it. Understanding the origins of this unprecedented reorganization of the relationship between the state and society is essential if we're to find a way back to normality. By the way, this is the reason I'm pretty excited to see Representative Mark Roberts pushing this resolution in Utah that asserts the proper separation of powers between the branches of government and puts the governor's collar back on him and yanks his leash hard. Because without this, the direction we're going is a consolidation of power at the expense of our essential liberties, And our autonomy. I'll have a link to the article from Brendan O'Neill, COVID and the Collapse of Reason. It is well worth your while. He actually spells out how, in at least in Britain, they got to this point. And you'll find there's a lot of good crossover here. He says we now live in a nation where arbitrary rules are introduced by government decree. Same. Same here. When people can be fined for visiting loved ones where ministers make statements about who we can hug, he's talking government ministers, by the way. When there is serious talk of Christmas being canceled, he says it's all so disorienting. Most people just can't work out what's going on. There's this mission creep that's understandable short, sharp, three-week lockdown somehow morphing into this much broader crusade to fortify every part of society against any level of COVID. He says, "What we're happening is what, or what we're witnessing, rather, is what happens to society when fear and distrust dominate, and when the impulse of ca- ca- catastrophism overrides our commitment to coolly negotiate the risks we face, and trusting communities to devise plans and strategies that work for them in times of crisis." It's a great article. I hope you'll take the time to read it again. It's in the show notes at the show.com. When we come back from our break, we're going to talk about um, two different things. Ten reasons that Mark Whitman, Mike Whitman rather, won't wear a face mask. These are very good. I'm not going to go through all ten of them, but I will definitely share a few of the better ones. And again, there will be a link in the show notes where you can check this out for yourself. Also... I know you've noticed that a lot of the young anarchists, revolutionaries, and rioters running rampant in the streets of America these days are young people. Well, before you write off all young people, you need to see the piece that Jay Shalin has written about four young men who may carry our nation through these tough times. This is a piece that's going to trigger some folks, but I'm going to share it with you coming up in the next segment. This
0: is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I feel like I'm on a bit of a tear today, and yet it feels so good. I don't want to stop. Does that even make sense? <laughs> Sometimes it just feels good to, to go off a little bit, but I hope I'm taking this in a, in a positive direction and not just you know backing you into a corner and beating you to death with my words. That's not my goal. I don't want to leave you fearful or angry, but I definitely want to motivate you, and if I can give you a rhetorical kick in the seat of the pants, that's what I'd like to do. So I mentioned that uh, there's an article here. It's a, it's a post from Mike Whitman from MikeWhitman.com, 10 Reasons I Refuse to Wear a Mask. And I like this because he actually goes into some detail here. He says, why don't I wear a mask or why won't I? First, it's not because I'm selfish, anti-science. I want your grandma to die. Donald Trump told me not to. I believe CV is a Russian hoax, etc. Second, he says, I don't care. I actually don't care if people wear masks or not. If you want to wear one, go for it. Throw on a face shield, even a hazmat suit on your way to Target. I'll do nothing but smile and wave when we cross paths in the kombucha aisle. But he says I've decided I'm not going to wear one, and here's why. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna go through the list, and I'll let you sort out the details. But he says number one, my face belongs to me. Number two, I don't have COVID nineteen. Number three, masks may actually increase a healthy ch- person's chances of contracting COVID nineteen. By the way, he's backing these up with explanations and yes, links. And these look like uh, the these aren't you know just somebody's blog, these are links to actual medical organizations and studies that uh, can give you kind of a jumping off point to see that there, there is research that would seem to indicate this. Number four, he says, I don't buy that your mask protects everyone else argument because it's unreasonable and illogical. Number five, it is good, right, and noble for me to have skin in the game when it comes to the choices I make and the beliefs I promote. Number six is the one that, res- that resonated the strongest with me, Resisting small-time tyranny is great practice for resisting big-time tyranny if and when it happens. In a nutshell, that's the reason I won't wear a mask. I love my neighbors. I love when I get to see them at church. And and, and I I know because I'm the only guy in church usually who's not wearing a mask that when they see me not wearing it, they've got to be wondering what the heck is going on. And I don't always get the chance to talk to him, but if I could, that's what I'd explain. My heart tells me that by resisting small-time tyranny, and I mean in the broadest sense, not that the church is making me wear a mask, but just generally, this is practice for resisting big-time tyranny. And I believe I have a duty to resist tyranny, whether it's big or whether it's small. I have a duty to do it, and I have a duty to show by example that sometimes that is the right thing to do. Number seven, the fastest, safest, least costly way to beat COVID-19 is by quickly spreading the disease through the least vulnerable among us in order to protect the most vulnerable. Number eight, the silent majority needs people who are willing to speak up and show up. Number nine, he says, I don't believe in the importance of mask mandates and other social distancing decrees because neither do they. In other words, look at what officials do. Look at the fact that, oh, you could be packed into an airplane, but you can't sit in church, even with masks, you know, in some places. It ain't about your health. Number 10, he says, I believe in the human immune system, which, by the way, has been responding to and overcoming viruses for millennia. Oh, and here's a bonus one. Number 11, masks are dehumanizing and contrary to the richness of human existence. Again, this is Mike Whitman. There's a link to it in the show notes. I would really recommend take a look at it. All right, now I'm going to shift gears, finally. At long last, I'm going to, you know, steer clear of COVID for a little bit. I want to share with you an article from Jay Shalen. This is from AmericanThinker.com. The four young men who may help carry our nation through these tough times. I'm going to warn you right up front, you may disagree strongly. But his point is that many of the young people rioting today are not committed Marxist revolutionaries. In fact, he says there are large, powerful, dark forces behind the riots. The actual rioters are really just political fodder. Many are rioting largely because it's considered by their peers and by their influencers to be cool. That's the popular thing to do in that they are the most recent iteration of the popular American counterculture that began in the mid 20th century and has traveled hand in hand with left-wing politics and alarmingly gained the upper hand in popular culture. I mean, this is something you can trace all the way back to the Beat Poets, man. A group of young men with literary ambitions who sought to live a more passionate, more ecstatic experience than the standard American dream of family, security, and prosperity. Their writings and experiences became the blueprint of the American counterculture. Sex, drugs, rapturous music, mad impulses, and defiance of authority, man. With them, a new spirit was unleashed, while decadence has always been with us, after the beats, it was celebrated as cultural inv- advancement, a virtue. So this is what you're seeing. This is the, the, the cool that uh, the cool kids are trying to implement. Hey, man, you got to stand up against the system, man. <laughs> if only they would have stuck with growing a soul patch and, and uh, you know, wearing their berets. In this case, uh, Jay Shalen says, rock may have replaced the beat's beloved jazz, and rap may have replaced rock as the soundtrack for the times, but the popular acceptance of decadence and defiance has persisted in youth culture to this day. To be cool, at least in the popular national consciousness, has been to show contempt for traditional mores, to regard those trying to preserve order as less evolved, and to flaunt one's pursuit of of sensuality. But now a new set of young men is showing a new direction, a new cool. Although they are unfamiliar with each other and rose to national prominence in different situations, similar themes run through their actions. So are you ready for this? You may want to pop some heart medicine and grab a chair. These are four young men who may help carry our nation through these tough times. They are Nick Sandman, who coolly stood his ground and maintained his dignity when verbally accosted in person, by an antagonistic protester and again when the media tried to portray him as the aggressor. The second is Kyle Rittenhouse who coolly protected himself under fire from a mob of criminals hell-bent on harming him during the Kenosha riot. And Brady Williams and Jared Bentley, two high school football players who resolutely stuck up for their principles by carrying flags representing police and firefighters onto the field before a game on September 11th despite knowing that punishment by their school's administration awaited them. Now, the author here says, certainly other examples exist, but these four exemplify the pattern. These are not part of the coastal elites. These are young men from flyover country. Sandman's from Kentucky, Rittenhouse from Illinois, the other two from Ohio. Interestingly, they all come from different backgrounds. Sandman is upper middle class his mother's a vice president of Fidelity Investments. His father is in sale, is a sales manager for a manufacturing company. Rittenhouse comes from the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, raised by a single mother who works as a nurse's aide. Williams and Bentley are from the prosperous working class. Williams is the son of a sheriff, while Bentley's father is a firefighter. Now, these four boys don't seem to be the sort of young men who usually garner public attention. They're not heading to Harvard with perfect SAT scores nor have they been embraced by the popular culture, to say the least. Actually, little is known about their performance as high school students, as it should be. But the way they present themselves is telling. Sandman is articulate. He appears to have excelled as a student and is now attending highly regarded Transylvania University. Catholicism looms large in his background. He attended a Catholic high school and rose to fame when attending a March for Life in Washington. Rittenhouse is a high school dropout and seems to have struggled more than the others. He was bullied in school, he's enamored of law enforcement, and participated in a juvenile police cadet program. He also tried to enlist in the Marines at age 17. He's worked as a lifeguard, he's done some volunteering, and has taken first aid training, which is why he brought his kit with him to the Kenosha protest. Williams and Bentley have not quite faced the firestorm of scrutiny that Sandman and Rittenhouse have. In interviews they came across as respectful and well-spoken, albeit with a rough and rowdy yet wholesome edge befitting their blue-collar football player status. Now, the author says the cumulative actions of these four and their subsequent behavior represent so much that is good about humanity. Respect, patriotism, sacrifice, faith, courage, service, humility, resolve, and dignity. Sandman seems headed for leadership as he matures. The other three seem poised to become guardians of society. The rough men who stand ready to do violence in order to let the mass of people sleep sleep peacefully in their beds at night. These four young men from the heartland, with their fresh-faced, clean-cut appearances and respectful demeanors, stand in stark contrast to the mad, barking loons and preening narcissists of today's mainstreamed counterculture and its popular culture heroes. Contrast them with the prancing (laughs) hypersexuality... Of uh, pop rock and rock stars, yeah. Or the uninformed mumbling of professional athletes, or the neurotic, irrational demands made by movie stars. I think he has a point here. Jay Shalen is saying these young men are probably better examples for us than any of the uh, <clears throat> protesters that you're likely to encounter. I think I agree.